Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, children of the night. It's a warm evening in the Shenandoah. Come on into our cabin and find somewhere comfortable to sit. Well, let's get it out of the way. For those of you who don't follow us on Facebook or Twitter, we didn't get the Hugo Award. I started this journey off very indifferent to whether we got the award or not. As time went on and I looked over the list of some of my heroes that have received the award, I started thinking, well, this would be nice. Very nice. I'll admit a little disappointment that the award went to our rival podcast, No Award. Anyway, about it. You'll still be able to tune in every Friday to hear our stories of monsters, the occult, murder, ghosts, revenge, and jerks getting their comeuppance. Let's move on to our fiction. Our first story of the night comes from Gregory Shepard. Greg is a freelance writer and poet with an attraction to stories that hide in the darkest of corners, dipping his toes for the first time into the pool of publication. Outside the studio, he works as a manager for a software company and is a landscaper, contractor, plumber, and electrician nights and weekends, at least at his own house in New Hampshire. Greg has several works in progress, including a collection of short stories, poems, and a novel. And now we will hear Gregory Shepard's Exit 41. Abby leaned towards Chris and noticed the needle pushing past eighty. Jesus, slow down, it's not a race, she said. Her brother Jake was oblivious to them from the back seat, playing on his cell phone. Babe, the game's on at twelve thirty, Chris said, looking at the speedometer. I don't want to miss kickoff. 
Wouldn't have to rush if your dad could afford a DVR. He glanced at the clock on the dash. 11.15. Man, we should have left last night. He could see Abby's glare from the corner of his eye and eased up on the gas a little. Listen, she said, waggling her finger at him. I don't want what the doctor told you to put you in a sour mood when you meet my dad. He idolizes football, and when I told him I was dating the Chris Manson, starting running back for the B.C. Eagles, he couldn't wait to meet you. Chris frowned and involuntarily touched the knee brace he'd worn for a few months. And you know I couldn't get out of work last night. Abby lit the cigarette she pulled out of her purse and rolled down the window, enjoying the last of her pack. Jake looked at Chris through the rearview mirror and said, Maybe if you didn't jump off the frat porch, you'd be starting your senior year, too. He relished twisting the knife in Chris's side, especially where it hurt him the most, football. Barely a week would go by without Jake on the phone, listening to a tearful, babbling Abby crying about the latest mean thing Chris did to her. Chris turned around, locking eyes with Jake. Would you say, asshole? Chris outweighed Jake by nearly 40 pounds and had at least five inches over his meager 5'6 frame, so Jake decided to stay quiet and look out the window. Stop! Chris! What's the damn road? Abby slapped his arm. Chris turned as a red 18-wheeler came into view from the ramp, swerving into the right lane in front of them. Chris cut the wheel to the left, giving the truck just enough room for the trailer to swing into the right lane. The truck accelerated ahead of them as Chris returned to the right lane, breathing heavily as he slowed the car down while trying to regain his composure. There were no other cars in front of him or the truck, and he saw no cars in the rearview mirror. Christ, either he didn't see us or didn't give a shit. After a moment, Chris began to pick up speed again. By now, the truck was ahead of them by more than a quarter mile. Chris looked at Abby. I mean, how could he not see us? You should have been paying attention, Abby snapped, returning to her cigarette. Hey, Abs, you almost done? That smoke is killing me, and my last inhaler's almost gone. He hated needing to use the damn thing, but since he could remember, he always had to carry one around. Nearly anything could set him off. I'm almost done. She took one more puff and flicked the cigarette out the window. Then she cranked the arm to manually roll up the window. Abby shivered. Boy, it's cold out. There should be snow on the ground by now. Jake, wasn't there snow last Thanksgiving? Abby got no answer from the back seat. The Peterbilt truck came back into view a few minutes later. It was in the breakdown lane. Chris pointed to it, immediately agitated. Hey, there's that goddamn truck again. Jake looked up and noticed that the truck seemed to be moving slowly. Suddenly, the truck's passenger door opened and a figure fell out of the cab, landing on the pavement. Chris's eyes widened. Oh, man, you see that? Somebody jumped out of that truck. Jake objected. He didn't jump. He was pushed. Abby leaned forward, as if it would give her a better look. Black smoke left the exhaust of the truck as it regained speed, moving back into the right lane. The man, or woman, on the side of the road was still an unrecognizable black blur. There was no movement. Chris, pull over. They need help. She held on to the door handle as if she was already going to get out of the car, 
Hurry, Chris. Okay, okay, I don't want to run him over. Take it easy. Chris pulled into the emergency lane and put the car in park about 20 feet behind the still body. Abby barely waited for the car to stop before getting out and bolting to him, Jake following her at a slower pace. They came to a man lying on his side, his back to them. Once Abby ran around him, she could see that he was alive, holding his arm and showing a face full of pain. She folded her hands over her face as she noticed the unnatural angle his right arm made, as if he had another elbow close to his wrist. She looked back as Jake reached her with Chris close behind. Jake looked at her face and then crouched down and tried to roll the man over. Jake saw the condition of the man's arm and took special care to avoid it. As Chris reached them, he said, Damn, is he alive? He got his answer when Jake rolled the man onto his back and the stranger yelped. He's our age, Chris thought. Jake, you're not supposed to move him. You could hurt him worse. It's okay. I think it's just his arm. Jake briefly patted him down to see if there were other injuries, waiting to hear a yelp or complaint if he touched an especially sore spot. But he either found none or his roadside patient couldn't feel anything else. Abby knelt near his head and laid his head on his knees while Jake finished checking him over. Hey, ma'am, can you hear me? Jake got a good look at him. The man, who under other circumstances would be the tall, dark, and handsome type his sister would go nuts over, opened his eyes and looked at Jake, and then Chris, who was standing at his feet, and then up at Abby. Ugh! The stranger winced while licking his lips and blinking quickly. Well, that sucked. He grimaced, displaying perfectly white teeth. Last time I hitchhike around here. Jake and Abby helped him sit up. His jeans were torn in several places, as well as his black windbreaker, but other than the broken arm and the various scrapes, no other major injuries were visible. Chris looked at Abby, holding the man's head in her lap, not particularly enjoying the image or the especially concerned look she gave the stranger. Chris saw the same look the day he got hurt, and Abby rushed onto the field to his side. Chris stepped forward. Hey, Jake, help me sit him up. They each grabbed a shoulder, but before they could lift him, he suddenly lurched forward to get completely onto his feet, stumbling a bit. Hey, the arm's broken, but I'm no cripple. He brushed himself off a bit, and then offered his good hand to Jake. Name's Owen. Thanks for stopping for me. He pointed up the highway, as if the truck were still there. That asshole said he would get me to Lewiston, but when he realized I didn't have any extra cash, he said he had to pull over for something. The next thing I know, I'm sucking on pavement. He walked towards the grass and picked up his hat, dusting it off on his leg and placing it back on his head. Abby reached her hand out to him. I'm Abby, and this is Chris. He shook her hand gently with a smile. Yeah, I'm Chris, her boyfriend. Owen turned, offering his hand to Chris, who shook it firmly, giving an extra squeeze at the end. Owen appeared unfazed by the attempted display of dominance. Jake pointed back towards the car. So, guys, maybe we should find a hospital, maybe the next exit, get the arm looked at? Oh, yes, please, if it's not too much trouble, of course. Owen was still smiling. They all walked towards the car, Chris watching Abby observe Owen. 
I'm sure they'll have one at the next exit. I'm sure. Jake opened the back door for Owen and helped him with the seatbelt as Abby and Chris took the front. Chris pulled back onto the highway, not before looking at the dash. 11.35. Damn, I'm going to miss the beginning of the game. For the next ten minutes, Abby tried to get as much information out of Owen as she could. She wanted to know where he was from, Connecticut, and where he was going, a few hours north in Lincoln, Maine, where his mother lived, and if his arm hurt, yes, but not as bad as the last time, she asked. And the farther they went, the more he simply looked out the window in silence, void of expression. Chris frequently looked back at him in the mirror. This guy makes me nervous, and no one makes me nervous, Chris thought. He was relieved to see the square blue sign with the capital H below an exit sign. We got a winner. Hospital. Next exit. He looked back at Owen. Guess you were right about that exit, huh? Without looking away from the window, Owen simply said, Yep. Chris drove onto the exit, which took them up a ramp to an overpass. Another hospital sign at the intersection indicated a right turn was warranted. As they progressed down the winding pavement, Jake noticed the distance increase between the buildings, each area more rural than the previous one. The tree branches on each side appeared to embrace the road, giving Jake a constricted feeling in his chest. After a sharp turn in the road, the trees receded from the road and a gas station came into view on the left. No cars, lights, or people. Apparently closed. They drove a few hundred feet farther and came to a covered bridge, but a large square orange sign indicated the bridge was just as open as the gas station. Chris brought the car to a stop and slapped the steering wheel. Damn it! Now where the hell do we go? Did anyone see a detour sign or a hospital sign that pointed somewhere else? He turned back towards the three of them, hoping that someone had an answer. He received two head shakes and Owen's blank stare. Jake held up his dead phone, regretting leaving his charger in the dorm room. Looks like we have to turn around, Owen said with a thin smile. Something about that smile really digs in my bones, Chris thought. I bet we can ask someone at the gas station about how to get to the hospital. Abby turned back to Owen. There wasn't anyone there. Even the lights were out. They're closed. As they drove back into the clearing, Abby noticed that the sign of the gas station was lit up. There were even two cars parked on the pumps and one near the bathroom on the side. Or maybe not, Abby said, a little nervously. Chris pulled next to one of the pumps farthest from the building. It was obvious that the station hadn't been built recently, or even within the past few decades. There was no Texaco, Mobile, nor Exxon signs, just one that proclaimed the obvious gas on the roof of what otherwise would have been a cape house. Most of the equipment, the pumps, the tire inflator, even the Coke machine on the warped porch, belonged in an antique store or a museum. Jake heard voices inside and noticed shadows flickering in the grimy windows. Abby opened the car door and Chris grabbed her arm. Nope, I'll go in. You all stay here. Hope they have a phone that works without having to crank it. Chris got out and walked to the porch, opening the rusted screen door as he walked in. Abby turned around to look at Jake. 
They should have a phone. We should be out of here soon, right? Her voice wavered, revealing her nerves. I don't like it here. Not one bit. Every second Chris was inside weighed on her and increased her anxiousness. She turned to watch the windows intently, trying to make out a shape that looked like Chris. Owen smiled, inspecting his fingernails. Oh, I'm sure Dougie'll take good care of him. Jake looked from the station back to Owen. He knows who works here, he thought. I thought he was just passing through. Abby, with a puzzling look on her face, asked, You've been here before? Owen looked up at Abby with a blank stare. His forehead creased and his eyes narrowed, as if thinking hard about his words. He started to speak and then sat back. Finally, throwing his hands up, he said, You got me. I think I'm done playing games anyway. His good hand shot towards Jake, grabbing his throat. Jake's eyes bulged, his throat squeezed with an unnatural force. Abby remained frozen, unable to scream. One more peep and I pop his head like a dandelion. Jake weakly pawed at his arm to no effect. Oh, it doesn't matter anyway. Doug's probably got things in hand inside by now. As if commanded, a man wearing dirty blue overalls with a red Dougie name tag barreled through the front door. He was nearly as wide as the doorway and was short with dark, greasy hair, which looked short until he turned to spit chew out of his mouth and his ponytail flipped over his shoulder. He walked towards the car, opened the passenger door, and pulled Abby out by the top of her head. Not by the hair. He gripped her head with his huge hand like he was picking up a basketball. Abby screamed while being dragged backwards into the station, locking eyes with Jake as long as she could until she was inside. Owen looked back at Jake. Lucky you. You get to go last. He loosened his grip just enough to let Jake breathe, but only a little bit. Easy there. I don't want you dead yet. Jake attempted to speak out, but was drowned out by the sound of the Peterbilt pulling alongside the car. Please let him help us, Jake screamed inside. Jake heard the cab door open and close. A man walked in front of the car towards Owen. He was tall and thin with short white hair, cut military style, sporting a wide grin. He hunched on his heels and stuck his thumbs into his pants, looking at Owen. Sorry, son. I didn't mean to kick you so hard out of the truck. I just got excited when I drove past these fine specimens. He bent down to inspect Jake from the passenger window. Owen smiled as he got out of the car, pulling Jake with him. Oh, it ain't nothing. He snapped his broken arm straight out, and with a crack, the forearm fell into place. He swirled his wrist around to inspect the repair with a satisfactory look. Jake had enough air to gasp. What the hell are you people? Still pawing at Owen's arm. A low, loud scream exited the gas station, followed soon by a high-pitched scream, which got cut off. Dougie opened the screen door and waved at them to come in. Owen smiled at Jake with his cold, dark eyes. His straight teeth were replaced with rows of razor-sharp fangs. Why, hungry, of course.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. That was Gregory Shepard's Exit 41 as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked probably uncomfortably, close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology that he can communicate in this limited fashion. He is a frequent narrator for two podcasts, Far-Fetched Fables and Right Here on Tales of Terrify, both part of the District of Wonders Network. His first audiobook was released on audible.com last month. Thank you, Seth. Next up, will be a story from Shane J. Cummings. Fairly recently, we heard his story, Memoirs of a Teenage Antichrist, as read by Dan Raybarts. We'll hear from him again tonight. Shane G. Raya Cummings has been acknowledged as one of Australia's leading voices in dark fantasy. He has authored ten books, including Shards and the four volumes of the Apocrypha Sequence, edited several anthologies and magazines, including the best-selling anthology, Rage Against the Night. And he has had more than 100 short stories published in Australia, North America, Europe, and Asia. Shane has won two Dittmar Awards, and he has been nominated for more than 20 other major awards, including Spain's Premios Ignotas. Shane is an active member of the Horror Writers Association. His website is www jiraya.com.au link will be in the show notes and now we'll hear Shane J. Cummings here, no evil Blaine awoke to a world of crushing silence he cracked open his eyes as though they were encrusted from years of disuse and squinted at the harsh artificial light the whole room was blurry and white Raising his arm, Blaine noticed a thin tube snaking into his vein. 
He watched with sick fascination as droplets of clear liquid trickled down the length of the tube and disappeared beneath his skin. He gagged, but nothing rose from the pit of his stomach. His airways burned as he sucked in a deep breath. His mouth was dry, his tongue swollen. The length of his body was weighed down, pinned by lethargy. His limbs ached, but everything was pretty much intact, except he couldn't hear a single sound. The silence pressed in on him like invisible hands crushing his skull. He experienced no tinnitus whine, no high-pitched buzzing rattling through his head, no muted warbles. The noises of the world had been shut off with horrific totality. The unforgiving light soon subsided, bringing the room into focus. He was in a bed, that much was clear. Crisp white linen held his torso and legs taut. A heavy curtain, the color of autumn green, rained down from the ceiling to the floor on all sides, enclosing the space around his bed. His gaze wandered again to the tube in his arm. He followed its transparent line to a plastic sack, half filled with more clear liquid. He tugged his arm a little, aware of the needle embedded under the skin. The sting was a sharp reminder that this was all real. His hand brushed hard plastic on the bed. Arching his stiff neck, he found it to be a small corded remote control with a single red button. A cough escaped his chest, rattling up his burning esophagus. His heart thumped harder as the coughing fit turned into a prolonged spasm, but the sound of the cough failed to reach his ears. Its absence left him violated. Like his racing heartbeat, the coughing rose through his skull as vibrations. Vibrations, but no sound. He reached for the controller near his hip. An unexpected spasm bounced the controller from his groping fingertips and off the bed. He never heard it hit the floor. He fought to gain control of his cough. Once he did, he calmed himself by taking deep breaths. Every breath was fire and needles. Exploring his face with a tentative hand, he discovered the coarse texture of bandages. He gingerly followed the line of the bandages to the side of his head. His ears were covered. They were hot under the binding mounds. He breathed a deep, painful sigh, also silent to his bandaged ears. Logic seeped back through his fears. He was in a hospital, and his ears were wrapped in bandages. He couldn't hear anything for that reason. The thought was oddly comforting. In a bit to regain the lost controller, he strained over the side of the bed. Agony racked his joints and muscles as he dipped his head closer to the floor. The smell of jumbled disinfectants flared at his nostrils. The heavy curtain flew back, startling him. He hung limp over the side of the bed, squinting up at the figure of a petite woman standing in the light. The sights of a hospital ward played out behind her. More green curtains, the glimpse of an identical bed across the room. The woman hurried to his side, 
placed firm, pleasantly warm hands on his ribs and back, and helped him back into bed. Her tight-fitting uniform and hat proclaimed her a nurse. A tidy crop of raven-black hair contrasted with her white clothes. She was probably in her late twenties. And cute. Her mouth moved quickly around a crooked smile, but he had no idea what she was saying. His world remained deathly silent, but for the steady beat of his heart. She noted his bewildered look and curled her lips into a laugh. Once he had settled himself back under the sheets, she moved to the base of the bed and picked up a small rectangular board and pen. With economical strokes, she wrote on the board and held it up to him. "'Hi, Mr. Blaine. My name is Nurse Stevenson.' A meager wave of his hand was all he could muster. She rubbed at the mini white board and scribbled something else. You were in an accident, but you are okay. He closed his eyes and expelled the painful sigh. He hadn't tried to recall what happened, why he was here. Now he focused his memory. He was a boiler maker. He remembered his last day at the site. They were putting up the skeleton of a mall on the edge of town, one of those suburban super-complexes where middle-class teenagers flock for their brand-name clothes, iPods, and mindless entertainment. On the mall site, he'd just finished welding some girders. In the background, he'd heard two of the apprentices messing around. If they were his apprentices, he would have kicked their butts for clowning around. As it was, he took the time to raise his mask and shoot them a glare before getting back to the task at hand. He remembered hearing the McKnight a blowtorch, mere steps away from the store of gas tanks. The fireball rocked the site. It was the loudest thing he'd ever heard. The boys were blown apart before his eyes, an instant before he was thrown skyward. The whole thing happened in a single heartbeat. How long have I been here? The words croaked from his lips. His rusty vocal cords worked, but he hadn't a clue if the words were loud enough for Nurse Stevenson to hear. She inclined her head, seeming to ponder the question. At least she heard him. A few seconds later, she held the whiteboard up again. A week? What about my hearing? he croaked. She nimbly wiped her last words from the board and wrote a new sentence. Your hearing will return soon. I will get the doctor. The relief rippled through him with a sigh, despite his burning throat. A scream rang through the room. The scream was blood-curdling, knifing a chill through his body. It was a long way away, but he heard it with horrifying clarity. What was that? He arched his head to the side, listening for the scream again. Nurse Stevenson seemed unaware of the scream, still echoing in his ears. Her mouth flapped in rapid succession, but he heard nothing. Registering his blank look, she returned to the whiteboard. What is it? I heard a scream, he said far too loudly, pinioning her with searching eyes. "'Impossible, Mr. Blaine. You are deaf!' He continued, turning his head from side to side. The world was now cocooned in silence once more. 
I, he stammered, his voice dead to his own ears. I didn't hear anything. I'll get the doctor, the board read. The nurse vanished through the curtain. Time passed. Blaine pulled into himself, balling his body under the sheets. He tuned his focus to listening for more sounds, screams, any sounds at all. He was deaf, of that he was certain, and yet that scream, that awful scream, was as real as the nose on his face. Why didn't the nurse hear it? Unable to maintain his vigil, he yielded to sleep. A firm shake ended his dozing. A tall man in a white coat continued to shake his arm. He didn't like the man, the doctor. There was something about his eyes. They were too guarded, too unyielding. It was irrational, but the feeling lingered. The doctor, a dark man of sharp lines and even sharper cologne, moved to the end of the bed and took the small whiteboard in hand. In scrawling style, he wrote, Hello, I am Dr. Radisich. Blaine propped himself up to face the doctor close to eye level. The pain was still there, but lessened each time he tested his neglected muscles. He wasn't an invalid, despite the hospital and the deafness. In front of this doctor, he needed to prove it. Blaine's resilience and stamina had always been his strong points. He was a veteran of the Amity Valley Football Club. He liked to test his physical limits through rock climbing and dirt biking. Doctor! The words spilled from his lips in an overloud tone. Save your words, Mr. Blaine. You're shouting, wrote Dr. Radisich. Sorry, he whispered too softly this time. You were involved in a workplace accident, and you have lost your hearing. He nodded, waiting for more information. Your hearing was damaged by the explosion. You were lucky to be wearing a face mask. Nodding again, he remembered the shockwave blasting his face. It could have been much worse. Your hearing will return in time, but we don't know when. You must be patient. A scream pierced the silent room again. Dr. Radisich carried on, intent on writing something on his whiteboard, totally oblivious to the shriek. Blaine bolted upright, swinging his head from side to side in an attempt to locate the source of the noise. Goosebumps sprang up over his arms and chest. The scream came from somewhere behind the doctor, still distant, but closer than before. It was a woman's scream. Her desperation tugged at his heart. "'Are you all right, Mr. Blaine?' the doctor wrote quickly, noticing a strange behavior. He shook his head violently. "'Screaming! I can hear screaming!' To his ears, his words were no more than a sick parody. His tongue and throat worked, but nothing came out. Dr. Radisich moved his lips rapidly, but their meaning was lost to him. He turned and thrust his head through the curtain. Moments later, a male nurse appeared. Nurse Stevenson was close behind. Their entrances were sudden and intrusive. The doctor disappeared while the two nurses hovered by his bed. 
Nurse Stevenson stepped forward and slipped her petite hand inside his. The warmth of her skin was reassuring. She stroked his arm the way an owner strokes a pet, just before it's put down. The doctor soon re-emerged, a needle prominent in his hand. Sighting the needle, he tensed. As the doctor drew closer, he struggled, attempting to get to his feet. "'You have to do something. She needs—' Springing forward, the male nurse held Blaine by the shoulders with practiced ease. Blaine was a big man, bigger than the nurse, but the nurse was fit and had all the leverage. Nurse Stevenson pleaded with her eyes while holding his arm. The needle was injected straight into a valve attached to his plastic IV tube. Within seconds, the fight fled his body. His strength ebbed away. Sleep soon took hold. A scream, desperate and hysterical, ripped him from a fractured dream. The scream had grown in intensity. He ran his hand over his face and head and could still feel the bandages. He hadn't dreamt everything. He was still in the hospital, although many hours must have passed since they drugged him. The lights were dimmed, but the green curtain still surrounded his bed. The scream continued, pulling at the very fibers of his heart. Every few seconds it died off, returning with force moments later. He ripped his sheets off and threw his legs over the side of the bed. Waves of dizziness threatened his resolve as he rose, but he quickly regained his balance. He was compelled to act. Testing his weight, he placed his bare feet on the floor. The concrete was freezing. His pajamas offered little protection from the chill air wafting through the ward. His arm bound him to the IV bag. Without hesitation, he ripped the slender metal from his vein, which burned for a long moment afterwards. Another wave of dizziness assaulted him as he stood. His body was fatigued, but flexing his limbs gave him the confidence to move. Another scream jolted through the hospital. He wobbled forward, unsteady at first, until he settled into a rhythm. Drawing the curtain aside, he found his room deserted. Another three curtains, all in matching shades of green, partially hemmed off sections of the room. A solitary four-paned window, with bars on the outside, provided the only feature to the room. The sky outside was dark. He left the room and entered a long, cluttered corridor. Following the sound of the screams, he turned to the left and took off at a jog. He rushed past the nurse's station, a reception desk located at the crossroad of two corridors. The nurse, a chubby, dark-skinned woman with glasses, looked at him with curiosity but didn't interfere. She said something as he passed, but he didn't hear any of it. Like her words, his footfalls were silent to his ears as he squeaked along the linoleum. As he ran past open archways, he glanced into each room. Most rooms in this ward were like his, housing four beds, each curtained off for patient privacy at this time of night. The curtain colors changed. Some rooms had that same drab green, while others had curtains the color of rust or faded summer blue. 
One room with blue curtains was full of co-opted acrobats, burned and scarred souls suspended from wires and slings above their beds. The man closest to the door was bandaged and squeezed into a full-body pressure suit. Poor bastard. As Blaine jogged down the corridor, some of his strength returned. An old man with a sunken jaw stared through him from his wheelchair. The wrinkled geezer glided on in the other direction. He dived into the elevator at the end of the passage. It was cavernous, with doors on both sides. In bewilderment, he studied the buttons. The screams came from somewhere deep. He pressed the button for the lower basement. The elevator jolted downward, the sound of the gears and pulleys lost to his ears. Endless heartbeats later, the elevator ground to a halt, with the door behind Blaine springing open. It took him a few moments to realize, as the metallic sliding sound failed to alert him. A high-pitched scream, more intense this time and wrought with pain, rang through the dark corridor before him. She was close. With scattered debris such as a broken wheelchair and empty metal shelving, it was clear the section of the hospital was rarely used. Blaine jogged into the darkness, passing several double doors indented with small glass windows. The rooms were devoid of light. The smell of sterilized death clung to the place, masked by potent industrial chemicals that made his head spin. Signs above the doors told him all he needed to know. He noted each as he passed. Morgue examination room one. Morgue examination room two. Another scream tore through the hospital. It came from room four, just up ahead. A dim light shone from underneath the reinforced door. He tried to contain his ragged breathing. His heart raced as he exaggerated his last few steps. He had no idea if he could be heard. Any noise could give him away. Approaching with caution, he glanced through the viewing glass. Black tape had been plastered over the glass, but a section had curled up, allowing Blaine a glimpse into the room. A man with dark hair and a white coat was inside, his back to the door, something shiny in his hand. The man's silhouette was familiar, but with the dim light that his face turned, he couldn't tell. He was fixated on someone in front of him. With his view blocked, all Blaine could see were two bare feminine arms, each bound with wire to metal shelving. Rivulets of blood trickled from her wrists down to her elbows. The man's hand moved with precision as he leaned closer to the girl. Blaine couldn't see what the man was doing to her, but it caused his hairs to stand on end and his stomach to knot. Blaine clenched his fist as another anguished scream rocked the hallway. There was no doubt now. He was answering this girl's cries. The man in the coat stepped back to admire his handiwork, offering Blaine a full view of the debauchery. The girl was spread-eagled, bound at the wrists and ankles by cruel wire, holding her in an X-shape. She sagged against her restraints, sobbing uncontrollably with her head bowed. Bedraggled dark hair falling past her shoulders shrouded her face. Her hospital gown was ripped open at the front and covered in blood. 
A poorly stitched wound on her throat was crusted with dried blood, and dark crimson lines marked her breasts and stomach. Fresh blood stained her torso a foul red and dripped onto the floor, where it was captured by plastic sheeting. The plastic covered the floor and much of the walls. She looked up at her tormentor with pathetic, pleading eyes. Blaine's blood burned when he caught sight of her face, her terrified face. Christ, she was barely eighteen, too young to die at the hands of this sick bastard. She shook her head as the torturer advanced again. He could see clearly what he held in his hand, a blood-stained scalpel. Her mouth moved, but if she said something, it was forever lost to Blaine's deadened ears. In his mounting rage, Blaine doubted the cruel bastard with the scalpel heard it either. He searched for a weapon, anything he could use to take the guy down. The corridor was sadly lacking. Turning back to the door, he saw the man waving the scalpel in the hapless girl's face. She shuddered and sobbed. He also caught sight of the tormentor's face. He wore a surgeon's mask, but the eyes gave him away. It was that prick of a doctor, Radisich. His fury raging, Blaine no longer cared about a weapon. Rational thought was overwhelmed by raw adrenaline. He slammed his shoulder into the double doors with explosive force and hurled his bulk into the examination room. Dr. Radisich turned in surprise, dumbfounded by the white blur of motion that charged toward him. The collision was sickening. The doctor collapsed like a sack as Blaine crash-tackled him into the concrete wall. A nearby metal trolley, carrying pristine metal tools and kidney-shaped bowls, rattled from the impact. Blaine didn't hear the clatter of the scalpel hitting the floor, the crumple of the plastic sheeting, or the snap of Radisich's ribs. The pair went down hard, the doctor bearing the brunt. For long moments, nothing moved in examination room four. Blaine rose to his feet and dusted off his hospital-issue pajamas, trying to remove the taint of the loathsome creature passing himself off as a man. He stared at the crumpled doctor, splayed unconscious in a mess on the floor, silently grateful for his years of football training. Unable to contain his disgust, he spat on Radisich before turning to the girl. Mr. Blaine, what led you down there in the first place? Flashed up on the laptop screen. Blaine pondered the detective's question carefully, reviewing everything that had happened that night. Getting the nurses to call for help and actually believe him took some doing. He'd commandeered a notepad from the nearest nurse's station and frantically scribbled his messages. Seeing the tortured girl's cuts soon convinced them. It was harder to convince the medical staff that Dr. Radisich was the culprit, but it didn't matter too much either. He'd been safely jammed into a storage cupboard, still unconscious and bound with the same wire used on the girl until the police arrived. I heard the girl's screams, Blaine typed on the screen, immediately below the question. He decided shouting at the detective was probably not a good idea. The detective, probably a few years younger than him, 
stared him long and hard in the face. His eyes wavered between Blaine's and the bandages wrapped around his ears. He soon left him with the laptop while he discussed something with another detective. They returned together a few moments later. The other detective, approaching his fifties, read the transcript and also shot Blaine a hard look. He turned the laptop around and typed something. Turning it back to Blaine, it read, That is impossible, Mr. Blaine. The girl's vocal cords had been removed. That was Shane J. Cummings, Hear No Evil, as read by Martin Rato. In a variegated working life, Martin has been a parent, a technical writer, and software developer, a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, symphony musician, and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Thank you, as always, Martin. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show is produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.